If you will, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Uh, we'll be in the first seven, seven verses today as we continue our study in the book of Acts. Um, we'll continue here probably until uh, December 1st, and then we'll begin a brief Advent series through the month of December. And I think our theme for that is going to be the, um, the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. But for now, let's continue on as we study in, uh, in the book of Acts. And as I was reading this, I, what came to mind was uh, uh, Newton's third law of motion. And that is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I, I thought about that because the gospel is going forth. The gospel is going out. From the very beginning of the book of Acts, the gospel goes out and there are equal and opposite reactions. There is a, a, a pushback, if you will, a counter-evangelism to poison the hearts and minds of people, to put pressure on those who are proclaiming the gospel. So the gospel goes out, but we should remember um, as we read through the book of Acts and also in our own lives as we proclaim the gospel that things also, there will be a resistance, there will be a pushback, there will be a counter-evangelism. So what I want to do now is I want to give just a quick preview of where we're going to go, maybe a little bit of an overview or just a review of where we've been. Where we've been is we are in Paul's first missionary journey. This is Paul's first missionary trip. You'll recall that um, the gospel came to um, Antioch, and in Antioch, um, the people had the bright idea, hey, what if we shared the gospel with Gentiles? And they did, and it was received. And then the Holy Spirit, when the, 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 the leaders of the church were praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set aside for me Paul and Barnabas, and I'm going to send them out into the mission field, and they're going to take the gospel into all of the world. And so this is that first missionary journey. This is um, um, this time where Paul and Barnabas are going. We're in the, the area of Galatia. And they are going from town to town proclaiming the gospel. Um, this particular chapter is uh, chapter 14, really is one single unit. I, I just couldn't fit everything, the entire chapter, into this one message. So I broke it up. We're going to cover it in two weeks. I really, really tried to make it in one week because it is one, one unit. Uh, but... We're going to get through the first seven verses today. And then, God willing, we'll get through the rest of the chapter next week. No promises, but that's the goal. Um, so let me just, let's go ahead and let's read our text, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll look at, at, at this a little bit more closely. Listen to the book of Acts. This is God's holy word. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia. 
and the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Father, we come before you this day and we pray your blessing upon your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would open our ears to hear what you would have to say, that I would speak with conviction, Lord God, empowered by the Spirit. I pray, Lord God, for wisdom to correctly understand your word. If I've been wrong in any area, Lord God, I pray that you would show me. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom to follow after what you have said. We give you praise. We give you thanks for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, let's begin just with kind of maybe establishing the setting where all of this is, is taking place. We can see that it says that now at Iconium that they had entered and my little uh, laser light died, but that's okay. So um, the, the, the disciples are up there, the very top part of your screen, the very northern part. They've been in Antioch, Pisidia, um, and thank you. And now they have, they're traveling, they get kicked out, all right? Basically, they get chased out of Antioch, and they move on down to Iconium. It's a, it's a, a, a city of about, it's about a 90-mile tra- uh, journey. Um, it's along probably the main Roman road that was used for commerce. It was the road that connected um, Ephesus and Mesopotamia, uh, and so this is a major, a major thoroughfare. It was, you could have driven a cart, a wheeled cart, and had oxen. So it was a major um, trade route for people. So Paul and Barnabas and whoever else is part of the team travel from Pisidian Antioch and go on down to Iconium. Um, the modern city of Konya uh, occupies that location. This is modern Turkey, and there is, a, there is a city there now. And the missionaries then, they enter into the synagogue because this was their custom. You'll notice as Paul um, goes from city to city, if there is a synagogue, he goes to the synagogue and preaches the gospel to the Jews and those who are God-fearing people in the synagogue. And that's what they're doing here. So you can see they leave Antioch and they move to Iconium and they enter the synagogue, um, the Jewish synagogue, um, together. Now, just to help establish the setting, we, we probably want to determine or, or establish why did they leave Pisidian Antioch? Why did they leave there in the first place? And the, the answer, and I think this will, will have bearing as we move along in, in the text, is that there was a violent uprising against the missionaries who are proclaiming the gospel. So they're proclaiming the gospel. The people come against them. They flee. They go to Iconium. Um, and again, at the end of our, our text today, we're going to see they get kicked out of Iconium and they flee and go elsewhere. And you're going to see that's kind of the pattern of Paul's missionary journey. He goes, he preaches the gospel, some people receive it, some people don't. The people who don't like him basically threaten his life, and then he goes on to another town, and uh, he starts all over again. And uh, so we see that very early on. So that's just kind of to help establish the setting, help establish where, where we're at. But one of the things that uh, we see right at the very beginning is this contrast between belief and unbelief. Um, that they go into the synagogue, they, they speak in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believe. So let's talk about those who believe for just a few moments and, and kind of highlight this fact that both Jews and Greeks are believing. And, and it's important that we establish what their method 
What was their method? So they went into the synagogue, and what did they do when they got there? Well, they spoke. They entered the synagogue together, and they spoke. And here it says, they spoke in such a way. We, we cannot lay aside or diminish the importance of the preaching of God's word. This is what they did. They spoke. And we see this is a major thing. Just in this text, we see that they spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. And then we see um, we, in verse 3 that they remained for a long time doing what? Speaking boldly for the Lord. And then at the end of this um, text, and there they continued to preach the gospel. The book of Acts is centered around the preaching of the gospel. That is the missionary activity, to go from one place to another and preach the gospel. Paul distills the importance of this later in his letter to the Romans where he says this. He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In other words, Paul understands that the preaching of the gospel is of such importance that one is not saved without the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ. I think it's important when we live in a day of, of, of promoting justice and equality and all of those things may be fine, but none of those things save. We have missionary activities where we dig wells and we ought to dig wells and we um, do acts of kindness towards others, and we should. I just want you to understand that the missionary activity is proclaiming the Word of God. This is why we also make it a center of our worship services, proclamation of the Word of God. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. If we're going to be saved, if we're going to be built up, we need to speak forth God's Word. And it's central in the book of Acts, and we see it central in this preaching. So, I thought this was a very interesting way that Luke phrases this. Remember, Luke authored this, this book. The book of Acts is authored by Luke. And he says this, they went into the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. I thought that was interesting because I don't know that Luke has ever phrased it that way before. That they spoke in such a way that produced belief. Belief came because they spoke in such a way. And I, so I kind of thought kind of working my way through this, and, you know, I ask a lot of questions. What does that mean? Well, I thought of a couple of different things. It could mean the character of their speech. It could refer to the character of their speech, that is, that their speech was persuasive, or their speech was engaging, or their speech was alluring or showy or somehow uh, demonstrable. Maybe it was loud. Maybe it was, uh, um, it came with great enthusiasm. But enthusiastic speech in Scripture never produces belief. So I can't think that it was some sort of enthusiastic or engaging speech. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to be engaging when we proclaim the gospel, when we share the gospel of Christ, when we talk about Scripture. When I get up here or you teach a Bible study, we should try to be, I think, being engaging, being interesting is, is a positive. But we don't want to come just in the wisdom of our of our uh, presence and just simply win people because we are persuasive. 
In fact, it's interesting because in 2 Corinthians 10.10, um, Paul quotes other people saying, you know, he's really bold in his letters, but when he's present, he's not very, he, he's not very impressive. In other words, when Paul is present, it seems like he's not the greatest speaker in the world. So I don't think that it has to do with the character of his speech, but rather it has to do with the content of the speech. And for that, we have all kinds of biblical evidence. We don't have... Scripture interprets Scripture, right? So um, when they speak in such a way, we've already seen how Paul speaks. We've already heard his sermons. His sermons are exactly like Peter's sermons. What do they do when they've gone into the synagogues, when they've taught um, to Jewish um, people in the synagogue? What they do is they speak in such a way to make Christ and his work central. Just go back. All you have to do is go back and, um, and look at Paul's sermon in chapter 13, verses 26 and following. I won't go back and read that. But Paul goes back into the history of the Jewish people and says, Look, brothers. Don't you remember God, our, the God of our fathers, how he delivered our people out of Egypt by a mighty hand and he raised up judges and delivered us and he raised up kings and delivered us and in these, last, and in these days he's raised up Jesus and you put him to death but God raised him from the dead. Now repent and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the way Paul preached. He preached in such a way that Christ and his work was central. How God moved through history to achieve his decreed purposes. How history finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. We have another clue of what this means by um, they spoke in such a way. We see that um, in verse 3, how they spoke boldly for the Lord, and the Lord bore witness, what? To the word of his grace. That's an interesting statement. That God considers his word, his gospel, his truth is a word of his grace. So I think we get a clue as to what it means to speak in such a way that produces belief. It is, it is making Christ central and it is a word of grace. I pray that all that we speak as we proclaim and speak God's word from the pulpit and our Bible studies around our dinner tables that we not forget that it is a word, it is a message of grace. In fact, all of the preaching in Acts is a message of grace. Have you noticed the pattern of the sermons in the book of Acts? Have you noticed the pattern? They're very similar, at least to the Jews. He's going to shift a little bit when he starts speaking to Gentiles, but that's another day. But when he's speaking to, to the Jews, this is what he says. God brought forth Jesus. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. That's the... Now repent. That's the general emphasis. God brought forth Jesus. You put him to death. God raised him from the dead and now he is declared or he is manifested as the Son of God with power because he has been raised from the dead. And you need to turn your life and give your life to the risen Christ. So I ask myself the question, why this emphasis, why this important point, but you killed him? Because it's in almost all of the sermons. 
God raised him up, but you killed him. I love in the last sermon in chapter 13, it says, you killed him, or you didn't recognize him. God raised up Jesus and you didn't recognize him, even though he's, re- his, he's referred to every Sabbath day in the reading of the prophets. I love that. In other words, you didn't recognize him, but you should have. You have no excuse. He came up. You have no excuse. You should have recognized him. But instead of recognizing him and bowing the knee, you killed him. It's an emphasis on killing the Son of God. We see this in Acts chapter 2. We see it in Acts chapter 4. We see it throughout all of the, the sermons so far in the book of Acts. God raised him up, but you killed him. The, the emphasis on you killed him is not you killed him so there's no hope for you, you pagan sinner. I know that because all of the sermons, Paul's and Peter's included, Stephen's also, goes along and says, you killed him, God raised him from the dead, and now you can have life in his name. In other words, you have sinned against the holy God, but you can have life in his name. The goal of pointing out their sin is not for mere condemnation or to say that there is no hope for you, but this is what it is. Even such a heinous crime as murdering the Lord of glory is forgivable by the Lord of glory who you put to death. The one you put to death is willing to forgive you for putting him to death. That's the purpose. You killed him, but not even that crime. Outdoes the grace of God. Paul again distills this later in the book of Romans where he said, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. This is it. You put to death the Son of God and not even that will stop God from bestowing His gift of salvation upon you. You killed Him, but that's not a crime that cannot be forgiven. Even that, God will forgive you. This is a word of grace. That you are forgiven, not because of your lineage, not because of your position, not because of your race, not because of any of these other markers of status, not because you tithe mint and dill, not because you observe all of the holy days and fast on Mondays and Wednesdays or whatever days it was you fast. You are forgiven because it is a message of grace and grace is unmerited favor. God forgives you as a gift. You all share in the murder of the Son of God, but you also all share and can share in His gift of forgiveness. And so Paul and Barnabas come and they begin to speak in such a way. They speak that Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's history and you can have forgiveness by His grace in His name despite whatever heinous crime you may have committed. And let that be a message for everybody here today. If you are wallowing in guilt and sin and what have you, I want you to know that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more that the salvation that God offers is for you. I hear people all the time saying, well, I would never go to church or I could never be forgiven. My sin is too great. That's just a lie from hell. Just a lie from hell. The result then is that Jews and Greeks believed They believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. They understand the temple observance and the legal demands. Remember, this is going in the synagogue, so we're not yet outside um, 
the, this isn't a gospel message to um, pagans. This would be a gospel message to those who um, uh, are, are Jewish and those who are what we would call Greek God-fearers. Um, they are, they are um, um, and or proselytites, that is, those who respect Yahweh but haven't fully converted to Judaism, or they are Greeks who have fully converted ju- to Judaism. Um, and so they believe, they believe now that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. They understand that temple observance and all of the legal demands of the Mosaic Code are not eliminated, but they are fulfilled in Christ. Because Christ kept them all. I want you to understand that. The law was fulfilled in Christ. I think too often times in Protestantism we have this. This idea that the law is negated. That we don't, we're not, you know, we use that, that phrase, we're not under law but under grace. I understand that, but but I hate to tell you this, you're still not supposed to murder. Here's how I believe the New Testament teaches all of this. You're still to be a lawkeeper. You say, well, I can't do that. That's exactly right. See, you're a lawkeeper by, by, by being in Christ. Christ kept the law perfectly, and if you are in Christ, you, have, you also then are um, judged as being a law keeper because you are in Christ. You are not a law keeper by meticulous observance to some code that you could not keep. You are a law keeper because you are in Christ and Christ kept the law. And so they gathered together in the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way. They spoke of grace. They spoke um, that Jesus is the fulfillment and some believed. Many, it says, believed. Let's pause for a moment and talk about what does that mean to believe because we have, a, um, an, I think, a, a, an incomplete idea of belief. Incomplete. Believe, when we talk about belief in Scripture and in the Bible, we usually talk about belief um, under three big headings. And the first big heading, and this is in your notes, the first heading of belief is knowledge. That is, you have a knowledge of the facts. You have a knowledge that there was a guy by the name of Jesus Christ and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. You have that knowledge. You can't believe in that which you have no knowledge of. So you have a knowledge that there was a guy who, knew, who, who in history lived uh, a sinless life and did great deeds and he died on the cross by the hands of um, Pontius Pilate and that he was placed on the cross, buried in a grave. Three days later, he rose again from the, day, the dead. You have a knowledge of that. That's the first big heading under belief. You have to have knowledge of these facts. Then there needs to be assent or agreement. Yeah, I agree with those facts. I've heard the facts that there was a guy by the name of Jesus and he lived a perfect life and he died as, as a substitute for my sins, was buried three days later, God raised him from the dead and I can have a freedom for my sin in his name. And not only do I know those facts, I agree with them. Because there's a lot of people who know those facts but disagree with them. Right? I remember 
Simone had a colleague, and uh, he was not a believer, and she gave him a a book that was an apologetic book and a very popular one. And he came back, he read it, and he said, this is great. This is great. I, I, I agree that there was a guy by the name of Jesus. I don't believe that he was the Son of God. He, he had the knowledge, but he did not assent. All right? So faith means we know the facts and we agree with the facts, but wait, there's more, because right now you have ascended to demon-level faith. The demons in hell know the facts about Jesus and agree with them. I would often say Satan's probably the most orthodox being in all of creation. He knows truth. All right, so at this point now, you know the truth and you believe the truth. One final step in Christian faith, and that is trust. This is the big step. That is, I know that Jesus lived a life, died for my sins according to the scriptures. He was buried on the and he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. I know that fact. I agree with that fact, and now I'm going to trust that that sacrifice, that that Jesus, and that His work really does forgive me of my sins that I can stand right before a holy God. Do you see? We need to know the truth. We need to believe it. And then we need to entrust our lives to what, to those facts that we agree with. At Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. They heard about Jesus. They agreed with it, and they entrusted their lives to the, for the salvation of their souls to the man who died for their sins. That's what's going on. Well, that's a great... I'd love to end the sermon right there. But you'll notice the next verse. But. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So I'm not going to spend a lot of, a lot of time here. See, not everybody believed. There, not only did a lot of... Not everybody believed, but they're there began a counter-evangelistic movement. That is, the Jews, and this is really interesting in, 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 in the Greek language, it says, but the Jews, the disobedient ones, it's a participle, but it is, um, the, the disobedient ones. I think that's an amazing way to, to state this, that unbelief in the message of God is disobedience to God. When you hear the gospel message and you believe it to salvation, if you disbelieve it, that is disobedience. To, you're calling God a liar. You're saying, I don't believe that. Certainly there must be something else to it. God can't be trusted. And so the Jews, the disobedient ones, unbelief in the message of God is disobedience. What did they do? They stirred up and poisoned the minds of the people. Basically, this opposition now begins to bubble up. And then, so, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds, and then look at verse 3. So they remained for a long time. And I just have to stop. You know I like little conjunctions and prepositions. and so We just have to stop here. So. That just, I don't know, that blew me away. There is opposition, so they stayed. 
Does that strike you as odd? Does anybody think that? There's opposition. There's people opposing me, so I'm going to stay. See, I think that's so unnatural. There's opposition. I'm out of here. First time we have some sort of challenge, I'm gone. Listen, if you don't want it, I'm out of here. No, there's opposition, so we're staying. Let's just stay a while. Why? Well, there's opposition. I think they have, they understand the value of the soul. Because there's opposition, they stayed a long time. Not because everything was going smoothly, they stayed a long time. No, because there's opposition, they stayed a long time. I thought that was interesting. In the trials, the missionaries do not assume, oh, well, there's trials, so this must not be God's will. How many times do you think that? That as soon as you enter into a difficult period, you're thinking, well, this must not be God's will. Because it's hard. They didn't see it that way. They said it's hard, so I guess we're going to stay. Man, it's pretty awesome. I love that word so, don't you? The value of souls is, is being saved is outweighed by the value of personal comfort. God's will is clear. Make disciples of all the nations. And here's the other thing, remember? Make disciples of all the nations. And what's the very, very last line? And remember, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. They knew that. There's opposition. So we're staying. Why? Christ told us to do this. Christ is with us. We ain't going nowhere. He's not going anywhere. This is good. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. We see something very similar there. Um, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I think I'm getting ahead of myself. But in the presence of opposition, they remain steadfast and speak the word with boldness, which brings me to my next point. So they remain for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. And again, I like prepositions and conjunctions and little particles like this. And so I got to focus on the word for. All right. You're going, really, you're going to make a sermon out of words like so and for. Yes, I am. 